2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 15. That's where we're going to camp out today. It's our key text. And uh, I'm going to give you a lot of scripture today to kind of lay a foundation for what I have to say. And uh, I'll give chapter and verse. I've got the scripture in my notes, so, you know, I wouldn't try to turn there. I'm going to move kind of fast through it. Uh, I would encourage you, if you're taking notes, you could just write the chapter and verse down because I will call out chapter and verse for each one. But before I get started, uh, I want to let everyone know that, that we are, on October 9th, going to be beginning a new series, a new church-wide series called, What on Earth Am I Here For?, and what on, what on earth am I here for is going to be based around the book that was originally called The Purpose Driven Life by Rick Warren. And that book has been repurposed and repackaged and kind of buffed up. And it's now called What on Earth Am I Here For? And so starting on October 9th, we're going to, Pastor Sam on Sunday morning is going to be uh, starting a new series based around that book. And we'll be doing that on Sunday mornings, and then on Wednesday nights, starting October 12th, we're going to come and have a a video uh, curriculum that's based from the book as well, and we'll watch the video curriculum, and then we'll break apart into small groups. Hey, my Aunt Sylvia's here. Hey, Aunt Sylvia. Uh, We'll break into groups and and have discussion, and it's going to be really cool. So you guys get excited about that. Are we ready to read the word? Second Corinthians 4, starting in verse 15. It's the New Living Translation. That's what I'll be reading from today if you're following along on your phone. Uh, all of this is for your benefit. And as God's grace reaches more and more people, there will be great thanksgiving and God will receive more and more glory. That is why we never give up. Though our bodies are dying, our spirits are being renewed every day. For our present troubles are small and won't last very long, yet they produce for us a glory that vastly outweighs them and will last forever. So we don't look at the troubles we can see now. Rather, we fix our gaze on things that cannot be seen. For the things we see now will soon be gone but the things that we cannot see will last forever. Let's pray. Lord, we, we thank you, God, for this gathering, Lord. We thank you that, that you are uh, also good to us, Lord. And Father, we thank you that you have revealed yourself to us in Scripture, Lord. And God, we pray now that, that you would just open our ears to hear, Lord. God, open our eyes to see, Father, open our hearts to receive the word that, that you have for us, God. And Lord, I, I thank you, God, that, that we will not be the one who, who, in whom the seed falls among the thorns and the, and the cares of this life choke it out, Lord. But God, I pray this morning that you would make us uh, good, fertile soil, Lord, that the seed of your word can fall upon, Lord, that produces much fruit in our lives, God. Father, I pray that 
that, that, that you would grace us as a congregation now, Lord, during this next 30 minutes or so to, to, to focus on you, Lord, and to receive what you have for us, God. I pray that, that, that today, Lord, that your church would be edified and that you would be glorified in nothing else. In Jesus' name, amen. Today, I want to start off by saying that God is undeniably and absolutely in control of the entirety of the universe. Absolutely. And that's where we're headed this morning. He is the sovereign Lord. And you've heard that word sovereign before, maybe. What sovereign means is supreme power and authority. And God's supreme power means that there is nothing in all of the universe that he cannot do. He is able to heal the sick. He is able to create or stop natural disaster and phenomenon. He moves the hearts of poor men and of kings and of everybody in between to do his good purposes. He performs the miraculous and he sustains the laws of nature from the most mundane thing in the world. He sustains it by the mighty power of his command. God's supreme authority means that no one can challenge or overthrow what he plans or desires to do. So there is nothing that could stop God's purpose, and he is sovereignly governing over all things. And let's look at just a few scriptures here that, that point to that, that we can, that we can kind of stand on here. Psalm 115.3 Our God is in the heavens, and he does as he wishes. Isaiah 46, 9 through 10. Remember the things I have done in the past, for I alone am God. I am God, and there is none like me. Only I can tell you the future before it even happens. Everything that I plan will come to pass, for I do whatever I wish. Daniel 4.35, all the people of the the earth are nothing compared to him. He does as he pleases among the angels of heaven and among the people of the earth. No one can stop him or say to him, what do you mean by doing these things? So today as we continue to step it up here at Church on the Rock North, I want to challenge you this morning to step up your perspective of God. He's not a bystander just watching your life. He is not seeking only to reward you as some people would have you to believe, nor is he seeking only to hurt you and to punish you as other people would have you believe. He is sovereignly in control of all things, which means that today we can agree with James 1.17 that says, whatever is good and perfect is a gift coming down to us from God our Father, who created all the lights in the heavens. He never changes or casts a shifting shadow. However, the fact that God is absolutely and sovereignly in control, if we think just a little bit, leads us to ask some very hard questions. And the chief of which came to my mind was, if God is absolutely and sovereignly in control of all things, then why do bad things happen? 
And that is what I hope to address scripturally in the next 30 minutes or so. But first, let's, let's, let's build the foundation. Let's look at some instances in our lives that, that we need to understand God's sovereignty over before we can really uh, address and tackle that question. First thing, this fall, we have uh, something very important. We have a presidential election. And I think everybody in this room, most people in this room, I'll say, can agree that the candidates from the two major parties are less than ideal at best. And, you know, this election has created um, anxiety, it's created fear, and it's created division amongst American Christians in particular. Uh, however, we must remember that no matter how immoral or incompetent we believe the elected president is, that God is sovereignly in control of that person's every decision. Every decision. Let me show you something. Proverbs 21.1. You know, people say, well, gosh, if that Trump guy gets elected, who knows what he's going to do? That Hillary lady gets elected, gosh, she's going to ruin our country. She's going to take away our rights. She's going to ruin our lives. Proverbs 21.1. The king's heart is like a stream of water directed by the Lord. He guides it wherever he pleases. So what we must remember is that the actions of Hillary Clinton or Donald Trump or of our Congress or of our Supreme Judges that so frustrate us and create anxiety in us and create division in us are perfectly governed by our Sovereign Lord. Our salvation does not come from government Our salvation does not come from democracy. Our salvation comes from the sovereign Lord of the universe, by whom and for whom all things were created. That's where our salvation comes from. Let's look at another one. Daniel 2.21. He controls the course of world events. He removes kings or presidents or dictators. He removes kings and sets up other kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to the scholars. So you see, God is the one who establishes every single king or president or ruler or dictator or whatever you have. He is the one who establishes the ruler of every nation throughout the course of history. Now that implies some pretty heavy things. Am I saying here that, that, that evil men like Adolf Hitler and Fidel Castro and a hundred other wicked evil rulers and dictators were established by God? I'm not saying that. The Bible's saying that. He's the sovereign Lord. It's time that we as the church step up our perspective of God. Let's look at another one. Actually, I'm getting ahead of myself. Let's ask another question. Why would God, why would God set up evil men in places of power? Why, why would he do that? When the book of Exodus, we see a wicked ruler come to power. He has 
hardness of heart towards God, and he oppresses and murders God's people under the, under the oppression of slavery. Uh, and he, he's, he's this man in power, and, and we just read, God put him there. Why? Why would God do that? Romans 9, 17. For the scriptures say that God told Pharaoh, Pharaoh was the wicked ruler. For the scriptures say that God told Pharaoh, I have appointed you for the very purpose. Here's why. I've appointed you for the very purpose of displaying my power in you and to spread my fame throughout the earth. So in raising up wicked rulers, God is able to display his power and it spread his fame throughout the earth more than if the wicked ruler never came to power. That's why. Now moving on, we're going to circle back to that. Just kind of, y'all just kind of roll with me here. We're, we're, we're culminating into something here. Uh, let's look at God's sovereignty over nature. Matthew 8, 23 through 27. Then Jesus got into the boat and started across the lake with his disciples. Suddenly a fierce storm struck the lake with waves breaking into the boat. But Jesus was sleeping. The disciples went and woke him up, shouting, Lord, save us. We're going to drown. Jesus responded, why are you afraid? You have so little faith. Then he got up and rebuked the wind and waves, and suddenly there was a great calm. The disciples were amazed. Who is this man, they asked, that even the wind and the waves obey him? On December 26, 2004, an earthquake of magnitude 9.3 in the Indian Ocean sent in all directions lethal tsunamis that killed approximately 200,000 people. Much closer to home on August 29, 2005, Hurricane Katrina made landfall as a, as a Category 3 hurricane, killed 1,800 people and caused approximately $108 billion worth of damage to property. Less than one month later, Hurricane Rita made landfall on September 24th, bringing with it an unprecedented storm surge killing 125 people and causing an additional $12 billion worth of damage. Most everyone in here was probably touched by that in some way, right? Why? Now let me back up. Let me tell you something. If your theology tells you that God was simply not able to stop those storms then you would be in disagreement with the Bible. If God would have spoke the word, that water would have stopped. It would have stopped. So why? Why did God, if he has the ability and the power to stop such devastating disasters, why wouldn't he stop them? It's because he has purposes. He has purposes in disaster and destruction. And, and again, I'm going to kind of put a bookmark there. We're going to come back. We're, we're building to something here. September 11, 2001, the Islamic terrorist group Al-Qaeda hijacks four commercial airliners, 
three of which are flown into the World Trade Center Towers, two, two at the World Trade Center Towers, one into the Pentagon, and a fourth one was crashed into a field as it was routing to Washington, D.C., and it crashed because the passengers were trying to take the plane back. On that day, 2,996 people lost their lives with 6,000 others being injured. 400 of the lives lost were policemen and firefighters. Now, I want to give you a hard text. Amos 3, 6b. Does disaster come to a city unless the Lord has planned it? That's a hard text. Why would God plan for something like that? Why would God allow tsunamis and hurricanes to kill and wreak havoc on people's lives? Proverbs 16.4, here it is. The Lord has made everything, the good things, but the very, very bad things. The Lord has made everything for his own purposes, even the wicked for the day of disaster. You see, he has purposes in these disasters, and the Bible tells us that they are good purposes. Now, some of you, even now, may stumble over God's sovereignty over the horrible things of this world. However, the Apostle Paul has an answer for us when we would question God and his purposes. Romans 9, 20-21. No, don't say that. Who are you, a mere human being, to argue with God? Should the thing that was created say to the one who created it, Why have you made me like this? When a potter makes jars out of clay, doesn't he have a right to use the same lump of clay to make one jar for decoration and another to throw into the garbage? Now, I want you to catch this. I want you to catch the analogy. If God is, in the analogy, God is a human potter, And so, if God is a human potter, then we are like an inanimate clay pot. That's the analogy. Which means that God is infinitely more wise, and infinitely more good, and infinitely more purposeful than we are. Who are we to question what God does in this world? There are a billion factors that we do not know about that God is perfectly taking into consideration for the universal good of his purposes as he does what he does in the world. We have to step up our perspective of God. Last thing I want to address is what I would consider the most devastating event in the history of humankind. The fall of man or original sin. And the reason that it's the most devastating event in the history of man is because every single horrible, evil, wicked, terrible thing that has happened since then is a result of that. The fall of man resulted in the cursing of the natural world. It resulted in billions of people rejecting Christ and going to hell. And it resulted in the crucifixion of God's only son, the murder of the only innocent man who ever lived. 
Well, let me show you something about, about the fall of man. First Peter 1, 18 through 20. For you know that God paid a ransom to save you from the empty life you inherited from your ancestors. And it was not paid with mere gold or silver which lose their value. It was the precious blood of Christ, the sinless, spotless Lamb of God. Now here's, here's the key. God chose him as your ransom long before the world began. But now in these last days, he has been revealed for your sake. So let's think a little bit. Let's read in between the lines. Let's, let's think of the implications of the text. If God chose Christ to be a ransom for our sin before the world began, then he must have planned for us to be ransomed from something, right? You don't have a ransom if there's not something to ransom from. And so we read this scripture, and it tells us that, that, um, that if God planned for Christ to be the ransom from the fall of man, then God planned the fall of man before the world began, and he planned thousands of years of human atrocities and horrors and billions of people being judged because of their rejection of Christ. Whoa, that's heavy. Why would he do that? Romans 9, 22 through 23. In the same way, even though God has the right to show his anger and his power, he is very patient with those on whom his anger falls who are destined for destruction. Here's why. He does this to make the riches of his glory shine even brighter on those to whom he shows mercy, who were prepared in advance for glory. Let me read you why again. He does this to make the riches of his glory shine even brighter on those to whom he shows mercy. You see, God's deepest purpose, his, his, his most underlying purpose in all of creation and all of humanity is that he be glorified. That is the deepest purpose of God. Someone may have told you before that God created the world and man because he needed relationship. I challenge you to find that in the Bible because it is not there. It's not. Part of God being God is that he has no needs. He is completely sufficient in himself, and thus he is able to perfectly be all that his people need. So the first reason that bad things happen is that God is glorified more in our suffering and disaster, and his subsequent sovereign work of healing and restoration than if we had no suffering or disaster. That's it. That's the first reason. Why hurricanes? Why Adolf Hitler? Why do bad things happen? Because God and his work of restoration is more glorified than if it hadn't. Now, let me show you some texts that reveal that God's highest purpose in the world is his glory, and then we'll circle back to how bad things happening fit into that. Uh, and, and while I read these, I want you to listen, because we're not turning there, but I want you to listen about how many times the word, the word about God's glory and about God's name is, is said. 
Romans 4.20, we see the purpose of Abraham's faith. Abraham never wavered in believing God's promise. In fact, his faith grew stronger, and in this, he brought glory to God. Ezekiel 29 explains why God did not destroy uh, idolatrous Israel in the wilderness. It says, but I didn't do it, for I acted to protect the honor of my name. I would not allow shame to be brought on my name among the surrounding nations who saw me reveal myself by bringing the Israelites out of Egypt. Psalm 106, 7 through 8 explains why God saved rebellious Israel at the Red Sea. It says, even so, he saved them to defend the honor of his name and to demonstrate his mighty power. Psalm 2511 shows why God is gracious and forgiving. For the sake of your name, Lord, forgive my iniquity, though it is great. Psalm 23, 3, he renews my strength. He guides me along right paths, bringing honor to his name. 2 Samuel 7, 23 explains why Israel was made strong. What other nation on earth is like your people, Israel? What other nation, O God, have you redeemed from slavery to be your own people? You made a great name for yourself when you redeemed your people from Egypt. You performed awesome miracles and drove out the nations and gods that stood in their way. Isaiah 61.3 tells us the ultimate purpose of our salvation. To all who mourn in Israel, I will give a crown of beauty for ashes a joyous blessing instead of mourning, festive praise instead of despair. Here it is. In their righteousness, this is when when we die and we go to heaven and we're in our righteousness, in their righteousness they will be like great oaks that the Lord has planted, not so they can be happy, but for his own glory. John 17, 1 through 5, gives insight that the purpose of Jesus' ministry was to bring glory to God. John 12, 27 through 28, shows us the purpose of the crucifixion. Jesus speaking, Now my soul is deeply troubled. Should I pray, Father, save me from this hour, but this is the very reason I came. Father, bring glory to your name. 1 Corinthians 10.31, so whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. Almost done. 2 Thessalonians 1.10 tells us the purpose of the second coming when Christ will return. It says, when he comes on that day, he will receive glory from his holy people, praise from all who believe. And this includes you, for you believed what we told you about him. And then Revelation 21, 23 shows us that in the new heaven and the new earth, that the culmination of all things will be God's glory. It says, and the city has no need of sun or moon, for the glory of God illuminates the city, and the Lamb is its light. And as you read the Bible, as you go through the Scripture, chapter after chapter and book after book, you'll find this theme of God's glory being his highest purpose again and again and again and again. I could replace these 10 to 15 verses with dozens of other texts just like them that show God's glory as being his highest purpose. Matt Chandler, 
pastor of the village church says this, quote, and so you have got a God who is not about man, he is about God, and I know that it's hard to believe, but that's good news for us. So we may conclude that the chief end of God is to glorify God and enjoy himself forever. He stands as supreme at the center of his own affection for that very reason, and this is why it's good for us, for that very reason he is self-sufficient and an inexhaustible fountain of grace, end quote. You see, because God is the supreme Lord of all, He is able to become all that we need for the glory of His name. That's why it's good news for us. We get the help, and He receives the glory. And that's how it works. Now look at this gracious and good promise that God makes to us in this fallen world. Romans 8, 28-29. You get, y'all know this. Y'all know this scripture. And we know that God causes everything to work together for good, for, of the, for the good of those who love God and are called according to His purpose for them. For God knew His people in advance and He chose them to become like His Son so that His Son would be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. Now hear me, the good in this verse, the good that all things work for, does not mean that we always get everything that we want. It doesn't mean that life's always easy. It doesn't mean that that, that, that the easiest path is always carved out for us by God. Why is that? Because we still deal in our hearts, in 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 this fallen bodies, in this fallen world, we still deal, even though we're believers and we're new creations, we still deal with selfishness and wickedness. And oftentimes, what we want for ourselves is very, very bad for us. You know? In fact, he says that the good of this verse is referring to becoming like Jesus. Did you see that in verse 29? He said, he chose us in advance to become like his son, that that Jesus might be the firstborn among many brethren, well, what happened to Jesus in this life? Well, he was hated. He was rejected. He was scorned. And he was murdered in this world. That's the good working us for it, right? You know, but stay with me. Uh, good does not mean that we will never have any trouble in our lives. Jesus made this very clear. John sixteen thirty three. I have told you all this so that you may have peace in me. Here on earth you will have many trials and sorrows, but take heart because I have overcome the world. You see, we will have troubles in this life. Can anybody attest to that? We will have troubles in this life. However, we can trust that in all of our affliction and sickness and sadness and pain, that if Christ is our Lord and God is our Father, then He is working our trial for His glory and for our good and for our conformity into the image of Jesus. So the second reason that bad things happen 
is that God uses them to change us to Jesus' image in a way that we would not be changed without the suffering. He uses it. In addition to that, our suffering in this life produces an eternal reward for us. The Bible says, so long as we suffer in obedience and submission to God, which brings us back to our text. Y'all still in 2 Corinthians? And still there? Let's read it again. Uh, verse 2 Corinthians 4, 15. All of this. And if you go back a couple of verses, I think in verse 8, uh, you'll see that the all of this is suffering for Christ. So you could read this verse, suffering for Christ is for your benefit. And as God's grace reaches more and more people, there will be great thanksgiving and God will receive more and more glory. There's the glory. That is why we never give up. Though our bodies are dying, our spirits are being renewed every day. For our present troubles are small and won't last very long. Yet they produce for us a glory that vastly outweighs them and will last forever. So we don't look at the troubles we can see now. Rather, we fix our gaze on things that cannot be seen. For the things we see now will soon be gone, but the things we cannot see will last forever. Now look at what Paul's saying here. You know, sometimes we read and we don't look. You know, we need to look. We need to steep in the Scripture. Look at what Paul is saying here. First in verse 15, all your suffering is for your benefit. Every bad thing that you go through is for, the, for your benefit if you're a believer in Jesus. It is conforming you to be more like Christ for the glory of God. See, unbelievers, they suffer for nothing. They have no hope. When they suffer in this life, they, they suffer for nothing. Yet God is so gracious to us, his people. He takes the trouble of this life and he uses them to make us more like Jesus and to bring glory to his name. That is the good of Romans 8.28 that all things work for for the Christian. God's glory, your conformity to Christ. We get the help that we need. God gets the glory. Yet God's goodness doesn't just stop in this life. He promises us something for our suffering in this life, for the next life. Let's look again at, at verses 17 through 18. For our present troubles are small and won't last very long, yet they produce for us the trouble, the suffering, the disaster. They produce for us a glory that vastly outweighs them and will last forever. So we don't look at the troubles we can see now. Rather, we fix our gaze on things that cannot be seen. For the things we see now will soon be gone, but the things we cannot see will last forever. You see, all the trouble in your life is producing for you a glory that will make your present trouble look both small and short. While your trouble is temporary, 
the glory that God produces because of that will last forever. So I'm just going to, these are just some things that God put on my heart. If your loved one dies unexpectedly, if you're diagnosed with an incurable disease, if you lose all of your wealth that you have spent your whole life building, if your marriage seems unfixable and a thousand other troubles of this life, we can trust that if we look to and glorify God in our trouble, it produces for us an eternal reward that makes our trouble look both small and short. We'll look back. We'll look back. We'll be in heaven one day and we'll look back and say, that was so small and it was so short compared to what I've gotten from God because of that. So the third reason that bad things happen is that God works our suffering for a mysterious I can't explain to you what it is. I don't know. But he works our suffering for a mysterious and eternal reward that we will enjoy forever. Listen to me. Your life crisis, it's doing something. It's doing something. I don't know who raised their hands whenever Jim was saying, but listen, you raised your hands because you don't know what to do and you're going through something. God is doing something. It's not meaningless. Let me close with two personal testimonies. About a month ago, we had our 20-year church anniversary service. We had a morning service and a night service. They were great. They were great services. And uh, after, after the service in the evening, there was, a, um, there was a reception with snacks and desserts. And, you know, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm, I'm kind of pawpaw-ish when it comes to nighttime. Uh, you know, I like to go to bed early and get up. Uh, yeah, get up early. And, uh, but, you know, it was the church anniversary, so, you know, let's, let's enjoy it. Let's talk to some people. And uh, our family ended up leaving the church at about 9.40 at night. And the reason that we left is because our one-year-old, maybe Ruth, had hit a wall, and she decided that it was time to tell everybody that it was time for bed. Everybody. <laughs> and um, so anybody who's, who's had a baby knows that, you know, when you're driving down the road and you've got the baby strapped in the back seat, um, it tends to cause your foot pressed down on the accelerator a little bit harder. And so I was driving through Lumberton. Um, right now we're living on the north side of Lumberton. I was driving through Lumberton on Highway 69, and all of a sudden the blue and red, whew, it popped up behind me. And, uh, oh, no, you know, um, it's, it's very ironic. Laura had just taken defensive driving for a separate ticket that Friday. And... Um, we had just paid it off, paid the ticket off, and anyhow. So as I'm pulling over, you know, I start praying, Lord, give me mercy, give me favor, give me grace, give me mercy, give me... And um, so I stop, and, you know, the officer comes up, and the baby's just screaming. And she's just wailing. And so I'm thinking, there's no way that this guy's going to give me a ticket. There's just no way. And sure enough... 
There it is, speeding ticket. And I didn't have my current address on my license. And I didn't have my update proof of insurance. And, and so he, he just nailed me. He, no mercy. And so as the officer is pulling away and I'm pulling away, um, all of a sudden my prayerfulness turned into some very focused, intense anger. <laughs> And, and so I started huffing and puffing and hitting the steering wheel and cursing a little bit and, and, and being short with my family. And uh, it got bad fast. And so I went home. We put the kids to bed. <laughs> you know, I'm walking around the house. And I go to my bed. I just go to bed. I got to go to work in the morning. And um, I lay down in my bed. And I guess a combination of being worked up over the ticket and having eaten dessert at 9 o'clock at night, I couldn't sleep. And so I rolled around in the bed for about an hour. And then finally, after about an hour of just rolling around the bed, some, some scripture started to come up into my heart. And I thought about Proverbs 21.1, which says that the heart of the king is like a stream of water in the Lord's hand. He turns it wherever he pleases. And I knew that if God wanted that officer to give me mercy... He'd given me mercy. I thought about Psalm 115.3. Our God is in the heavens, and He does as He wishes. And I knew that God doesn't take plays off. God doesn't take naps. He doesn't miss some things. Some things, some things don't slip by the goalie when God's in the goal, you know? Um, and I knew that, ha- that what happened to me had happened by His sovereign decree. And then I thought of Romans 8.28, that this annoying experience had some means of working good in my life. And so those scriptures kind of finally brought me to the place where I was ready to talk to God. It was all in my heart, in my mind, in my head, but it went something like this. Me. God, what are you trying to do in my life? through this dumb ticket. God, you sure were angry. Me. I know, Lord. I'm sorry. I shouldn't let anger control me and cause me to sin. God, why were you so angry? Me. Well, I have to pay this stupid ticket now. Here's where he began to lovingly press, God, you sure do love your money, don't you? And on the struggle went. And the point is, is that I didn't receive some dumb, meaningless ticket. God was doing something in my life. He was churning up some of the dark and dirty sins in my life. And bringing them to light so that by His grace, I can deal with them. Now I have anger and the love of money as focal points of prayer that I'm focusing on with Him, with by His grace, to crucify in my life. You see, He used my trial, my small little trial, to conform me to Christ. I got the help. 
And as a result of this testimony, and as a result of the fruit of my life, he will receive the glory. You know? You see it? It's not meaningless. It's doing something. Last testimony. I didn't plan for this. Son, will you come here? Giddy man, come here, buddy. He's not supposed to be in here, but he is. This is Gideon. He's three. And when he was two, um, his mom called me uh, on January 18th. And she said, let's go up so Daddy can see his notes. She called me on January 18th and said that he was acting really sick and lethargic. And uh, so we talked about whether we should bring him to the doctor, and we decided, no, we'll, we'll wait. We'll, we'll wait it out, and if he's still bad, we'll bring him in the morning. Well, that night, he was really sick, and we decided we can't wait. We've got to bring him to the Lumberton ER, Altus. So we brought him to Altus, and a couple of doctors looked at him, and one of the doctors found uh, a small spot on his lung, and they recommended that we bring him over to St. Elizabeth in Beaumont. So we went over to St. Elizabeth, and there was no doctor there that night. So we, you know, the nurses came and looked at him, and we were admitted for the night. And Laura went home. Mabry was six months old at the time, still nursing. Uh, Laura went home to take care of her and Josiah. And I slept at the hospital with Gideon. So then the next day was a, a lot of doctors not being able to figure out what was wrong with him. And, uh, you know, we kind of settled in with the idea, we're going to have to spend a couple of nights in the hospital. And so I went home, and I packed a bag, and I was starting to pack, and Laura calls me and says, hey, they're sending, the, they're sending us to Herman Memorial Hospital in Houston right now, I need you to pack a bag for me, pack a bag for you, pack a bag for Mabry. You want to go sit down, bud? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Careful. Pack a bag for Mabry, uh, load him up in the van, and, and we're, we're, we're going to Houston. Wow. You know? And, and so Laura's mom was with me, Beverly, and uh, she helped me pack up. And then I called my mom. Uh, hey, can you watch Josiah? Uh, yes, yes, I can. And, and so she took Josiah and uh, Laura rode in the ambulance with Gideon to the hospital. And um, we drove behind them in the van with the baby, sons, with my mom. And uh, so when we finally got there, we decided since we had a nursing baby, you know, Laura and her mom should get a hotel and I would continue to sleep with Gideon at the hospital. So that's what we did. And um, the next day, we had like a team of doctors. It was, it was, it was very impressive. Was a great hospital. And they discovered that Gideon had contracted pneumonia, but from the pneumonia, he had developed a very rare um, uh, sickness called empyema, where he formed an infection on the outside of his lung, and his lung, the outside, the cavity outside his lung was filling up with, with this nasty fluid stuff. 
And it was really, really bad. So bad that that afternoon he went into emergency surgery. And they went in and they, they took out all the stuff that was on the outside of his lung and they had to leave a little tube in his side to, to, to allow it to drain out. And so they moved him after surgery as he was coming out of the anesthesia. They moved him to what's called the PICU. It's the ICU for children. And uh, it's where the sickest, we were on the intermediate, the second to the worst floor. They moved us to the PICU floor, which is where just the, the sickest of the sick children go. And so they didn't have any rooms open, so we were kind of in a side room. And um, there was a chair, the, the, the nurses found me a chair to, to, to sit in with him and, and to watch and uh, it was nighttime by then, and he, he was still under the anesthesia. And because he was under the anesthesia, he had a tube down his little throat. And uh, I just remember, I remember seeing him with, you know, he would wake up and, and not know what was going on and, and gag on the tube and start crying. And, you know, Daddy's here, Daddy's here. And then he would go back to sleep and... You know, just just think of the little man. I, I remember at one point looking at him while he was sleeping, and I, I could not. And he had a tube down his throat, IVs in his arm, things up his nose, probes all over him, and wires and machines. And the seriousness of my son's condition really sank in on me as I sat there all by myself. And I remember intense fear first coming of losing my son, the possibility of losing my son. And then I remember a very uh, threatening heart towards God if he were to take my son from me. Do you know what God was revealing to me in that moment? He was revealing to me that at times, God is not my greatest treasure. He was revealing to me that He is not the supreme Lord and that I do not trust Him with all things in my life, including the life of my son. And so in that moment, God gently pressed on this area of idolatry in my life. Just lovingly pressed. And I chose by His grace in that moment to lay my son's life down at His feet. It's just on the inside of me. I was all by myself. And oh, at that moment, grace and peace flooded into my heart. And you know, long story short, you see him there? <laughs> He made, a, he made a quick and full recovery. Um, in fact, right now, you would never know that, that he went through that, except he's got two holes in his side, one where the tube was and one where they went in and, and did their thing. He's completely recovered. But if you ask Laura and I, we believe that Gideon's near-death experience was more about us than it was about him. I could tell you about how we learn to trust in God and rely on His strength more than we ever have before. 
I can tell you of how now our family is submitted to the Lordship of God on a deeper level than we ever have been before. I could tell you of the lost people who were suffering through trauma with no hope. They didn't have the hope and the promises of Scripture who we were able to pray with and to minister to in the waiting room. I could tell you of how Laura's parents and my parents stepped up and helped us get through that trial. You see, the Lord did a work in us through that terrible, terrible week and a half that he never could have done by simply blessing us. He did a deep work. We got the help, and God continues to get the glory. It's not meaningless. It's doing something. So today you may be going through suffering as a result of this broken and fallen world that we live in. And if you're not, then you need to look no further than the Bible to understand that that deep suffering will come to your door one day. It's in the Bible. In this life you will have trouble. And, you know, while I was preparing for this, God put something on my heart. Um, you know, I went through the list about losing loved ones and sickness. And, but when I, whenever I was making that list, God really put marriage on my heart. You know, and, and a bad marriage can seem like a black hole. It can seem like a pit of despair. And I, I think somebody here, maybe multiple people here, are going through some very difficult things in your marriage. Can I, can I tell you something to just step your perspective of marriage up? You know, in, in Ephesians chapter 5, it says that, uh, as the Scriptures say, man shall leave his father and his mother, become united with his wife, and the two will become one. This is a great mystery, but it is an example of Christ's commitment to the church. That's what marriage is. Marriage isn't about me being happy. That's a side result of a good marriage, but marriage isn't about me, 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 me getting what I need, me getting what I want. Marriage is an example of Christ's commitment to the church. And can I tell you why marriage is hard? Can I tell you why God made us, made men and women where so oftentimes we go like this? Why did he do that? Do you remember what God saved you from? Do you remember all the ugh that was in your life before God saved you? But then he came and he, he took us and he, and he married us. We were born again and he married us. But can I tell you, can anybody attest that in your life, in my life, we still got a whole lot of that God has to deal with, right? There's still a whole lot of sin, a whole lot of things that are extremely unpleasing to him. But he is faithful to us. And I want to tell you that your husband or your wife 
has a lot of stuff that makes you very unhappy at times. But your marriage, the, the, the main focus of your marriage is not to get what you want, not to get me feeling elated and great. It's an example of Christ's commitment to the church. And so will you be a witness to Christ's faithfulness to you by being faithful to an imperfect spouse? Because hear me, he's doing something. He's doing something in it that he couldn't do if everything was going just your way. Amen? So today I just want, I want you guys to walk away from this church gathering with a deep sense that in my suffering, God is doing something. He's working my suffering for His glory. He's working my suffering for my conformity to the image of Christ. And He's working my suffering for a mysterious and glorious reward that I will enjoy forever. And let's stand and pray. Lord, we, we thank you, God, for your faithfulness to your church, God. Lord, we thank you, God, that, that, that despite this broken and fallen world that we live in, Lord God, despite the many troubles that we face in this life, Lord God, you never told us that following Jesus would make our life easy. But you did promise us, God, that in all the difficulty and all the disaster and all the heartache and all the suffering that you have good purposes. Lord, thank you, God, that you redeem every moment of suffering in our lives, God. That you redeem it for your glory. You redeem it to make us like Christ. And Lord, I pray that, that in, the, in the dark moments of this life, Lord God, that, that our theology would stand up and that it would tell us that you are good, that you're doing something, that there's a purpose and a reason, Lord. And God, I pray for anyone here who, who may be an unbeliever, Lord. God, I pray that you would open their hearts to see the goodness that is available to us in Christ. Lord, I pray that, that any unbeliever in this place, Lord God, who, who, has, who has been suffering and, and travailing through this world for nothing, Lord, I, I pray that, that you would open their eyes to the goodness that is in Jesus. Father, that you would work the new birth in their hearts, Lord, and that they would turn to you, trust in you, and follow you all the days of their life, God. We thank you for these things. We stand on these promises. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.